Good morning. Have you ever watched somebody like, rock climb, mountain climb? Some of you actually do that. You know, proud of you. Hope you're paid up with Jesus and, you know, ready for such things. But, you know, I've just watched it in movies because like, I'm scared of heights. haven't ever told you. And so, like, they'll be climbing. Some will, like, free climb. Like, you know, for me, I can go up a mountain like this, and some of them can go up, like, straight up. And then I, I watched one guy. And he, like, went up an inverted cliff. Like, he's going up backwards. Like, the, the, the cliff is backwards. Like, what in the world is this? And, you know, my mind's like, how strong a grip do you have to have to climb up a mountain facing the ground? Right? What kind of strength do you have to have? Well, that reminds me of what God's up to in Hebrews for you and I. As we face the mountains of life, sometimes the incline is a little easier, like Chris-level incline. Sometimes it gets really hard. It gets really confusing. It gets painful, right? That thing's straight up. And he wants us to hold on there, and then sometimes that thing just absolutely crushes on top of us. And what do we do? And I I believe the author of Hebrews is strengthening our grip to keep climbing. Strengthening our grip to hold fast when life hurts, when life is painful, when life is challenging, when life is confusing, and we don't see the way Keep holding tight, strengthening our spiritual muscles to hold on, strengthening our spiritual muscles to keep climbing. And so that's what I think he's talking about today is as he gives some warnings and he gives some promises to spur us to hold fast, to to keep climbing. And I think that's what he's done by saying hold fast like four or five times this far in the book. And so we've been looking at the, the main theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better, so hold fast to your faith and keep uh, pressing on to maturity. Right? That's what Hebrews is about. So how does he strengthen your spiritual grip to hold on when you're dangling above the ground and like one slip and it's over? How is he encouraging you to hold fast and keep climbing when it seems impossible to go one more step, to, to find one more footing, to, to find one more thing to grab hold of? A simple truth. Jesus is better. He's better than what you can lose. He's better than what you can gain. He's better than what you can go back to. He's better than anything that can possibly be offered in this world. And he's better satisfaction and better comfort if you lose the things in this world that are most precious to you. If that's true, you can keep holding fast. If that's true, you can keep climbing. And so we finished up a major section last week on Jesus as a high priest. He's the once and for all sacrifice. He is the one who has given inauguration to the new covenant of forgiveness of sins and relationship with God and this fresh heart-driven obedience. And then last week what he did is he brought those truths that we've covered for four or five chapters into a very pointed application for yours and my life. So very important encouragement or, or exhortation to our lives, and he gave it in three parts. And so, since you can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, meaning since you have access to God and the presence of God at any time with no reservation, and since when you get there, you're going to find Jesus on your side there, welcoming you there, representing you there, advocating for you there, since that's true, there was three very simple applications that flow out of that. And the first one was, draw near with an assured faith. Not your faith is assured that you are strong enough in your faith, but your faith is assured because it's in Jesus and not yourself. And so worship the Lord in your private life. Worship the Lord in your work and family life. Worship the Lord as you gather with God's people. Draw near. Pursue the Lord. Abide in Christ. You have access to God that is unparalleled in human history. Why wouldn't you access God and rest in his presence and live in his presence? Draw near. And then the second application, hold fast to the confession of your hope, right? If you have faith, that faith produces all these hopes. You haven't seen them yet. They may not have happened yet. They're in the future. And so there's a hope that you can hold fast to. There's all these glorious promises you can hold fast to. You may not feel the forgiveness of your sins, but you've been declared righteous by the work of Jesus. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. Don't let go. It'd be easy to let go. 
It'd be easy to shrink back. It'd be easy to leave. But don't. And then the third command. The third command was, the way I put it, obsess over other people how to incite them to good works and love. Obsess about the people around you. Obsess about the church. Obsess about the people in your Sunday school class. Obsess about the fellow believers that are part of whatever campus ministry or group you're a part of. Obsess about them. Because you want to provoke them to a deeper love for Jesus and a deeper love for the people around them. And you want that love to come out in their lives in purity and come out in their lives in uh, walking with Jesus and come out in their lives in obedience and come out in their lives in service to other people and blessing other people. You want to see their lives filled with love and then love show up in, in how they interact with people and how they interact with the Lord. Right? And so what would it take for the person sitting next to you right now to take one more step of faith, to take one more step of growth? And that was the question. And then he challenged them, you're going to be tempted. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Right? You're tempted to that. And probably in their context, what they were doing was, if I go to church, I'll be identified as a Christian. And if I'm identified with a Christian, there'll be a certain amount of suffering or, or making fun of or ridicule that will be part of that. So if I don't go to church, maybe I can keep my faith in Jesus. I'll just keep it privately. And so I can still stay with Jesus, but, but I don't have to face the hard stuff if that happens. But for us, that, that's probably not the thing that keeps us from assembling with other believers. It, it's not the thing that keeps us out of church. But there's a great danger to being someone who neglects church as part of your overall spiritual life. There's a great danger to that. Right? On one hand, there's a lot of danger to you. You aren't as mature as you think you are, and until you place yourself in a context with other believers and, and, and God starts to show by his spirit and rubbing up against other people, here's some areas I want to work on, you may not realize that there are things God wants to work on. I was an absolutely perfect husband until I said I do. And then you start living with a human being day after day, and God starts sanctifying you day after day. And you know what else I was? I was an absolutely perfect parent to the kids in the restaurant across the, the way from me. And what they should have done to make those kids be quiet and behave at the table. And I was a perfect parent until I had kids myself. And all of a sudden there's things that have to grow in my life. I think that's what he's talking about. We assemble together for us, but we also assemble together because if you're not around other people, you're not thinking about other people. If you're not around a face and a name and a person on a regular basis, that person drifts out of your mind, and you're no longer worried about how can I provoke them to love Jesus more. You're no longer worried about what would it take for them to run after Jesus more. They've vanished. Don't neglect assembling together. But don't just show up with people. Speak with people. Like, how can my life make your life richer, fuller, and increased? How can my life help your life to flourish? Encourage each other. Strengthen each other. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon again. That's just most of it. Um, so that's what, that, that's what was last week, and it's connected to this week because we start this week with the word for, meaning this week is the reason those are so important. And so what we're going to get here is probably one of the hardest passages in the book of Hebrews to understand, especially as it relates to uh, can we lose our salvation. So we're going to try to wrestle through it. We'll do the best we can. But what we get is this, this charge to hold fast in the present, to keep going in the present. And he's going to build the argument this way. Argument one, there is a danger and painful consequences attached to sin. You need to be warned that sin is real and it's a big deal to God. He does that through verse 31. In verse 32, he contrasts that and says, remember in your life some important things. If you'll remember God's faithfulness in the past, and if you'll remember how your muscles of endurance were strengthened through past trials, then it will lead to the point. Therefore, you can endure. Therefore, you can endure, and you can do the will of God today, and you can be faithful today if it's easy, and you can be faithful today if it's hard. So, therefore, don't shrink away today because it's hard. Endure today even though it's hard. There's a great reward coming. There's a preservation of your soul coming, 
There are great promises that you haven't tasted yet, but they're coming. And so that's how the text folds out. Let's listen to it as, it, as we go in. Chapter 10, verses 26 through, through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit and the work of your word and the work of your church to strengthen us to hold fast, to strengthen us not to shrink back when everything in us wants to run and hide, to not shrink back because it's hard and it's painful and we can't face it. But, God, we'd be filled with your Holy Spirit and we'd be filled with your word so that we hold fast. And that we help each other hold fast. And we help each other run the race with endurance that's been set before us. And we help each other look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that he had a joy set before him in the people that are around us. And that we'd have a joy set before us in helping each other. And so Father, help us run. Help us to glorify Jesus whatever the scenery of our life happens to be. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So gospel warnings and gospel promises spur us to hold fast. Gospel warnings and gospel promises spur us to hold fast because sin is serious and consequences are painful. Sin, are serious and it, sin is serious and its consequences are, are painful. And so probably if you have a stack of memory verses written down somewhere, and I would encourage you to have that. And so if you have that, this verse is probably not in your stack Proverbs 13, 24, and it says something like this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him will discipline him diligently. And so there are a lot of ways we blow the discipline thing as parents. We do it when we're angry. We do it in self-righteousness, looking down on them. There's a lot of ways we blow it. But if we don't discipline them at all, we're really blowing it. Or there's a verse like Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: folly is bound up in the heart of your children. Parents, can I get an amen? Those little suckers are foolish. And, and there's something about our parenting that has to get that foolishness out of them somehow. Well, the rod of correction drives it out of their hearts. The principle is this. We have somehow adopted as a society the view that it is loving not to discipline our kids. It is better for them, and they'll be healthier and more well-adjusted if we don't discipline. And that's exactly opposite of the Bible, which says, if you love them, you'll discipline them. If you love them, you'll train them in the direction of, of God. And in fact, if you don't discipline them, you know what the problem is? You're unloving and selfish. Because it's hard to discipline kids. It's hard to do it right. It's hard to stop everything you're doing because they never, they never are just ugly right in the middle of free time where, where it's easy to do it. 
is hard. And so selfishly, it's just more comfortable for me to say, oh, they'll be fine, and isn't that cute? Well, but it's not as cute when, when they grow up, and it's not as cute when they're teenagers. And, all right, end rant. Here's the point. We've adopted that same mentality in our friendship with other believers. It's, it's loving for me, meaning it's selfishly comfortable for me, and it's easier to keep our friendship intact if I, if I don't correct you. If I don't challenge you on anything, if I don't see what's ahead and warn you about what's going on, it's, it's easier. It must be loving because we stay comfortable. It must be loving because no feelings get hurt in the process. But, but, but what if the consequences of not saying something are infinitely more painful than hurt feelings? What if it's like this guy that, that was following his GPS this weekend and Google let him down because it led him to a bridge that was out and he went over and he died? So what if I hurt his feelings and said, you have got to stop now. I don't want to stop now. This is the way the GPS says. You've got to stop now. I don't want to stop now. This is the fastest way. Like, no, no, I better not say anything. It might hurt his feelings if I say stop and turn around. I know the bridge is out. I don't care what Google says. It'd be so much more loving of me, wouldn't it? Except for instead of a hurt feeling, he'd, he'd be alive. And so when we think about this thing called sin, sin only has the power in your life to destroy you, to tear down things in your life, to harm your relationships, to harm the, the, the flourishing of your life. It only has the power to destroy and if that's the case, then do I love you enough to be uncomfortable when I need to be, when I see you're going towards the bridge that's out? When I see you heading towards a, a pattern in your life that looks like it's developing and is destructive, when I see you going in a direction that, that can only lead to messing stuff up, do I love you enough to be uncomfortable? Do I love you enough to risk our friendship having friction because I, I have to say something, I have to at least warn you. And I think that's what this passage is doing right here in the first section. It is a warning. Sin is not a game to God. He died for it. It's a warning. Sin has painful earthly consequences that you're going to face if you keep going in it. And I love you enough for our feelings to get hurt if I can save you from some of the painful consequences of, of choices that dishonor the Lord. So let's look at it as we, as we jump in. We've, we've seen the overview, a warning about a win, willful, sinful habit that then transfers over and says, but, like, remember, you've gone through this before. God's been faithful before. You can keep going. All for the purpose. Both of those things accumulating for the purpose of therefore, endure today to do the will of God for the rest of your life and then walk into the eternal promises of God at the end. And so that's what he wants you to do is stay faithful, hold fast, walk into heaven, scarred and beaten up a little bit, but walk into heaven and receive all the eternal glorious promises that await you there. And so let's look at it. For if, it ties us back to the applications of 19 through 25. And so we don't know what specific sin is being warned against in this passage or what type of sin um, that's being, being warned against here. But if it says four, he might be tying it back to the neglecting of assembling yourselves together, the neglecting of wanting one another, each other. And so it could be that instead of going to church where the Christians are and I'm identified as a Christian and I get made fun of, or worse, I've pulled back from the community, I've shrinked back from the community of faith, and maybe I'll just go do the Jewish sacrifice thing and I'll fit in. I'll still believe in Jesus, but I'll just do the stuff everybody else is doing so that it stays comfortable when I fit in. That's possibly what's happening as they neglect drawing near to worship God. That's possibly what's happening as they have quit holding fast. That's possibly what's happening as they stop meeting together. So that's, that's one of the things that may be happening. Or it could be that the, the drawing off of holding fast and drawing near and obsessing over each other, that it ties back to that in this way. The way you hold fast is you pursue God passionately, right? I'm not going backwards if I'm going forward. The, the way you hold fast is you cling on to gospel promises. The way you hold fast is you meet together and, and, and consider each other and stir each other up and provoke each other to good works. And if you do those things, you won't be in the position of the people in this text. But if you don't do those things, 
This is where you're going to go. And there's a warning that you fall into willful and deliberate enlightened sin. We don't know exactly. You know, we're trying to read and understand what, what it's tying itself to so that we can better understand, all right, are, are we going to lose our salvation here? Right? That's why this is such a hard passage is it, it, it brings up the idea that maybe we can so I'm going to deal with that in a second, but I want to first just go through the text as it's meant to be, and that's a warning to you, and it's a warning to me. Sin is serious. Sin has consequences. Don't play with the stuff. Don't play with the stuff. Right? The best herpetologists, that's a big word for snake handlers, right? and they make fun of churches for doing it, but some people do that for a living. The best of them are probably going to get bit sometime. When you play with stuff that bites, you get bit. Don't play with sin. That's the warning of this passage. And so as he goes through it, he talks about if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. We don't know the specific sin, but we know the posture of the sinner. What is the posture of the person being spoken to here? If they go on sinning, that means it's a present tense, ongoing habit of their life. And so whoever we're talking to is entrenched in their sin and they're presently doing their sin and they're not stopping their sin and and they're keeping on going as a habit and a pattern of their life. The second posture of this person is it is high-handed, willful, and deliberate. Do you see that? And so they keep on sinning. It's a habit and pattern of their life and it's deliberate sin. It's willful sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not a frailty. It is a high-handed, willful choice of their life to keep doing this pattern. And then the third posture that we see in this person is their eyes are wide open. Do you see that? They've, been, they've come to the knowledge of the truth. They've seen what is true and they've seen what is right. And in, in the face of what is good and in the face of what is right, they keep going. I take the gentleman, God's greatest out of that do in our life. It's pretty, verse 8, and this sounds real of sins, no sacrifice remains. Same word, same construction. And this sounds really challenging. Like, does that mean they have lost their salvation and can't come back? We're going to get to that in a second. But what possibly is happening in this text is I've got a forgiveness from sins by the blood of Jesus. And it's, I've seen the bankruptcy of my old way and the bankruptcy of my old sacrifices. Jesus alone can forgive me. And then... Possibly if this is the sin it's talking about, but I'm going to slip back over here into the Old Testament sacrifice. I'm going to slip back over here to the priest in the temple because that makes me fit in and, and that, that takes some of the pressure off. And the, the author just seems to be saying, how absurd is it when all these sacrifices were exactly what drove you to Jesus in the first place? They're exactly what you needed in the first place. So you came to Jesus. How absurd is it to go back to what never worked in the first place? Possibly the, the explanation for this text. And then he goes into the Old Testament example. Right In the Old Testament, the death penalty was given for this wide variety of reasons. It was given for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. It was given for touching the ark if it was falling off a cart as they traveled. It was given for rebellion to parents. It was given for murder. Like this whole wide range of things. Now, I will say... In all of the passages of the death penalty, almost none of them speak to were they saved or not saved. It was the physical consequence of that particular type of sin. But do you see what he's saying? Like, even under the Old Testament, there were people that died on the evidence of two to three witnesses if they committed a capital crime. What's the point? Well, that's a little thing. How much worse a punishment is deserved by you and I? If we trample underfoot the Son of God, not stone tablets, if we profane the blood that saved us, if we insult the Holy Spirit operating in us. And so what I would say is the sin is not trampling the blood of Jesus. The sin is not profaning the blood. Instead, it's giving you a perspective of what a Christian sin does. So if you were to think about that sin that is small, it was just a little white lie. That sin that was small, it was a prayer request gossip. It wasn't even just straight gossip. It was, you know, it was holy gossip. If you were to think about as a Christian, what does my sin do functionally? Look how he describes it. The little sins you have and certainly the big willful ones. It tramples Jesus underfoot when we sin 
as believers. Right? What it says is, Jesus, you and your sacrifice are not as important to me and not as satisfying to me as the sin I'm about to commit. And so we walk over the top of Jesus' sacrifice like it's not an important thing. What else does sin do? It profanes the blood that has saved us, meaning it treats this powerful blood of Jesus that saves us and this powerful blood of Jesus that cleanses us and this powerful blood of Jesus that empowers us to move forward. And what it does is it, it treats that like some common and ordinary thing, like it is not precious blood of a lamb without spot and blemish. And what else does our sin do as a Christian? Our sin insults the Holy Spirit that seals us and promises us eternity. It insults the Holy Spirit that is living in us, pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ. It insults the Holy Spirit that's in us, whose his purpose is to empower you to walk in him a life pleasing to God. And so is our sin a little deal? Or is it a big deal? I think the passage is meant to warn us it's serious. It says something more than we think it says, and so that creates in us, if that creates in you a horror of sin, it's done its job. More than that, if it creates in you a thankfulness for Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, knowing you would trample over it, then it's really done its job. So if a passage like this provokes you to purity and provokes you to thanksgiving for the grace of God, we're right where we need to be. But if it allows you to keep going your way, be warned You can only expect judgment if that's how you choose to go. You can only expect a worse punishment. And then he quotes these two Old Testament passages, one of which says, the Lord will judge his people. So what do we know from that text? God judges. What else do we know from that text? His people. So there are Christians, there are believers, there are covenant people who face the discipline and the judgment of God. So that's what we know. Uh, Now, let me answer the question of, is this a believer who can lose his salvation? Is this a believer who can lose his salvation? So I'm going to give you as quick a way as I can the four different views that people have answered that question with. One, Arminians. If you don't know them, don't worry about it. It is, this is a true believer who has lost his salvation. Now that we reject out of hand. There is no merit or truth to that. If you've read Hebrews to this point, you can't walk away with that conclusion. There's a once and for all sacrifice that has sanctified you for all time, perfected you for all time. There is a once and for all sacrifice where the work of God has done this and not your work. So if it's the work of God that's done it, it's the work of God that secures it, and it's not your work. And then there's other places in the Bible, but just the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, don't let you leave thinking our salvation is questionable. Second view would be the Reformed view. And if you don't know who those are, don't worry about it either. The Reformed view says these are professing believers who are part of a community of faith, but they're not genuine believers. And the fact that they got into this situation or left the church over this situation shows they were never genuine believers in the first place. And so I would say to that, there are absolutely people who do not have a genuine relationship with Christ, but are active parts of the church. There are absolutely people that don't have a genuine relationship with Christ and do all the church and religious stuff that everybody around them does. And something along the way, whether it be their sin patterns or their departure, will at some point reveal they were never truly saved. But I wouldn't say that's these people. Because as you read through the text and they're enlightened, as you read through the text and they've come to the knowledge of the truth, all of those are believer kind of words. So I don't think we can go with that direction. It would be easy and then we could stop and move on, but we can't. View number three. This is hypothetical but not possible. Meaning, hypothetically, a believer could respond to all that's happening by going this way, but there is no true believer that can actually go this far to the place where God judges and removes them. And again, that is a possible explanation, um, but I don't think it's the right one. I'm going to commend to you the fourth view. And so it goes along in Hebrews chapter 6, if you were still, if you were here with us then, and if you still remember that many sermons ago. What we said was that passage was about a loss of rewards view. It wasn't saved or unsaved. It was, do they, do they lose the rewards of a life of faithfulness by going into this situation? And I think this is the same. It is a physical punishment view. 
And so he's not talking about eternal destinies. He's talking about the consequences and the judgment, that, or discipline would be a word that might be helpful, the discipline that will be on our lives if we live this way. Let me give you a few passages that support that, and then I'm going to uh, give you a few reasons why. So 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let everyone take care how he builds Now, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And if you notice in our text, the fury of fire, it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what kind of work each one has done. And if the work that they have done survives, they will receive a reward. Better reward is in our text. They will suffer loss, but they will be saved only through fire. So what is it saying? Genuine believers will have their life put to the test by fire. What is left will be rewarded, and what burns away, they will face the loss of that, but they, won't, they will be saved even still. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread, this is the Lord's Supper, uh, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment to himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we won't be condemned. What is the passage saying? Believers have taken the Lord's Supper the wrong way. They've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And so they have been judged for that. Genuine believers were judged. And why were they judged and disciplined by God? So that they would face discipline, but not condemnation. They would face discipline, but still have their salvation. Last text, 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what shall be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What is he saying? Judgment, God's people. It is perfectly in line with the character of God to judge his people and reward them. Judge his people and and have some of their reward removed. So why do I say that's what's happening here? The theme of the whole section has been what? A high priest who represents us, and has made a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf that has perfected us for all times. That wars against the idea we could lose our salvation or that it depends on us. Second, the word eternal is never used in this passage. He's used eternal all over the book of Hebrews. But there is no eternal word that makes this eternal judgment. And so I would say it's temporal judgment, physical discipline. Uh, Number three, 1 Corinthians 11 is the only other time where this construction of profaning in the blood of the covenant is used. And what is happening in 1 Corinthians 11 that we just read? Genuine believers taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, and as they do that, they are judged so they won't be condemned. And so the parallel passage or the reference passage is about physical discipline of illness and sickness and and weakness and even, even death. Um, Old Testament background passages deal with death penalty physically, not salvation. And so what would I say the view is that people who find themselves in the position of willful, habitual, eyes wide open sin are walking further and further and further to the place where God's discipline will increase and God's discipline will become more painful and God's discipline will become more catastrophic in their life. And that's what we want to keep them from. So... What is your view of sin as a believer? Is it like, ah, it's not that big a deal? Grace, man, grace is amazing. And it is, it is. But is that our view? Like this cheap grace, sin's not a big deal to God? Like why did Jesus die if sin wasn't that big a deal? It's a big deal. So what is my view of sin? Or is my view of sin? I live in this overactive guilt all the time because I sin every single day and I keep messing up. And so guilt, 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 because guilt makes me feel better that I beat myself up enough to pay back for some of the sins. That's a wrong view. Or is my view 
that I run to Jesus to disclose my sin, to find his grace, to be changed more into his image, and keep running and holding fast. That's where we need to be. What's our view of sin? It's a big deal that points me to Jesus with gratitude as opposed to it's not a big deal. Second question, how can you help the people around you? How can you help the people around you that are close to you when it comes to sin? Do you love them enough to be uncomfortable to help them forward in Jesus? Or will you continue self-protection that never does? All right, second step. By remembering God's glorious promises. So because sin is serious, we're warned. By remembering God's glorious promises that sustained you in past hardship. By remembering God's glorious promises that sustained you in past hardship. The old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And I'm not going to sing it for you, and I know you'll appreciate that out of me. But what is it? I'm going to raise a stone of remembrance. A stone that says, God has helped me here, delivered me here, done good for me here. He's delivered me here. And so what I want to encourage you, and what I think this passage wants to encourage you is, let's start becoming stone collectors. So that you can go through and you can pick up a stone and say, oh, here's where God intervened in my marriage. Oh, here's where God intervened and I had $5 in my account and no money coming in on the horizon. Here's the moment God helped me. Here's the moment God saved me. Here's the moment God restored a relationship. Here's the moment, memory after memory after memory of the work of God in your life. And I want to encourage you to become a stone collector that creates memories of God's work in your life so that you have a pile of memory stones. Now, if you want rocks and write on rocks, do it, great. Maybe you just write this on a piece of paper now. However you need to do it. But did you collect a bank of memories where God has intervened in your life, helped you in your life, delivered you in your life? Because when times get cloudy and confusing and painful and dark, I want you to be able to go back to a book and say, God has helped me, Ebenezer. God has brought me this far by grace, Ebenezer. God has done this in my life before. And so I don't have a clue what's going on now, but you know what I do know? God has always been faithful. God has always brought me through. God has brought me this far by his help. So he contrasts this. But, he says, as he goes to this, but recall the former days. What are you supposed to remember to keep you going in the present? Remember when you were enlightened. Do you remember when sacrifice after sacrifice just felt you, made you feel guiltier and guiltier? Do you remember when the things that you did to medicate your guilt, all they did was make you feel guiltier and guiltier and guiltier so that the weight became so heavy? Do you remember the weight? Has it been too long to where you forgot the weight that pushed you to Jesus? Do you remember when you saw Jesus for the first time with his beauty and his glory and his majesty, with his arms welcoming you, Though you're a sinner with love to forgive you and embrace you into the family of God, do you remember that? Remember when you were enlightened. Remember what brought you here in the first place. Do you remember when you met Jesus? Go back to that memory, that memory of God calling you from darkness to light, that memory of God calling you from death to life. Remember, if you can remember that with fresh, vivid clarity, it will give you power for your present holding fast. Remember the second thing. Remember you've gone through this before. Remember you've suffered before for the name of Jesus. Remember that you endured last time and God was faithful last time. Ebenezer, remember that. But we get it, don't we? Especially if you have a few more gray hairs. I'm a little older than the last time. Every battle you'll face in this life leaves a mark and a scar and takes a toll. And so I get it. I don't think I have one more in me. I don't think I can do this again. I don't think I can face this hardship. Yes, I've been through a dozen before and God has been faithful. I don't have the spiritual gas to get through this again. That's okay, because he does, right? And, and, and what the author wants to do is make you look at that a different way. Don't think I'm worn out, I've been through so many trials already, or I've been made fun of already, or it's hurt already. Change that perspective to say, God's gotten me through it before, he can get me through it again. And if I look at my trials that way, that hey, look at all he's brought me through, this is no big deal. Not because of me, but because of God. And just because he got me through that, he can get me through it again. And if you change your perspective to these memories of help, you can face 
what's happening today, and that's why he's doing this. And so remember that. And then remember, you were partners with people that got treated the same way. Think how easy it is. Like you're in a group of friends, and then all of a sudden one of the friends becomes the target. And you start making fun of them and cracking jokes and sarcasm, and that, that guy is centered in on. You've been there, I know. Hopefully, you didn't take part, but maybe you did. In those moments, it is so easy to like slip back into the crowd and like, I'm so glad it's not me this time. It's so easy to just withdraw and hopefully not join in, but maybe even join in. It's so easy to be on this side of the table than that one. And I think that's the danger that's being talked about here that they avoided. The last time this happened, when your brother was being made fun of and when your brother was facing hardship and when your brother even went to prison, it would have been so easy to be like, man, I'll pray for you, but I'm going to stay over here and I'm glad I'm not the one. But what did they do instead? Remember how you walked towards the people that were suffering and towards the people that were openly ridiculed and identified with them instead of blending into the crowd to be separate from them. Remember the compassion you showed those people and the love you showed those people. And remember how you didn't care if they plundered your goods. How on earth could you live that way? How could you live that way? Because you know something that's more important than what you could lose. What does it say? They knew. They knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Think about what that does. Think about the perspective that if it is true that heaven is a better satisfaction and a better possession than a billionaire's life of comfort here today. And if we really believed that, how would we live? Or if we really believed that it is a better possession to walk into heaven with, with the Spirit of God and the gospel of God on your life, and it's better to have that than anything I'm longing for today, anything I've lost today, anything that's failed me today, anything that can be taken from me today, how much can I face? Does it mean I don't have scars? Absolutely not. You will enter heaven with scars. But when you enter heaven, you will gain better satisfaction and better than anything that you lost in this life that ripped your heart out as you lost it. And anything in this life you missed, and any dream that was crashed, and any expectation that failed you, you will enter, and it will be so much better that it will be like you've lost nothing. They knew they had a better possession coming than the stuff that could be stolen from them. And you do too. And not only is it better... It lasts. Nothing in this life lasts. Shiny new car. It's been a long time since I've had one. They're expensive. Shiny new car. And immediately you drive it off the lot, it loses its value. Immediately you drive it off the lot and it starts breaking itself down. And working out breaking down over years and years and years. And it needs maintenance and it needs washing and it needs waxing. By the way, public service announcement. You live in Statesboro, Georgia. Your car should be waxed at least twice a year. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> do with it what you want. Sometimes these things just come to my mind. That's how it goes. Nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. All right, so what was I talking about again? <laughs> it's an abiding possession. It doesn't rust. It doesn't fade. It doesn't begin to break down. It's a forever and forever better possession. Nothing here lasts like that. It's 11, almost 12, so let me just read the last point. Uh, so you can endure with present faith and future hope as you go in, uh, versus go into hiding. You can endure with present faith and future hope versus go into hiding. And that's what this is pointing you to. If you're warned where sin is going to take you, if you're reminded that you have in the past walked through this with endurance and walk through this with the grace of God and walk through this with the faithfulness of God if you're reminded that something better's coming why on earth would you throw it away today why would you throw away a confidence in Jesus today he's proven himself before why would you throw away a confidence in Jesus today because it hurt and and it was painful or it's confusing why would you throw this away and in the past you endured why because you knew there was a better possession. And now look at this verse. In the present, you know there's a great reward. So in the present, endure. That's been the point. 
Remember the past so you can do the same thing in the present. Endure for the better reward. And so what does he say? The only verse I'm going to point out to you, and we'll probably pick some more back up, I don't know, eventually when we get back to Hebrews. Uh, For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's a framing verse for your life. You've got to endure today. You've got to keep faithful when it's hard today. When hardship comes into your life, you have to struggle through it, endure through it. To what result? To the result that you do the will of God. So that you do the will of God with your life, that you please God with your life, that you glorify God with your life. When times are easy, you glorify God with your life. How can I honor the Lord in my prosperity? How can I honor the Lord as things are comfortable? How can I honor the Lord in in a moment, in a season of green pastures and still waters? How do I honor the Lord with this? And the same question, how do I honor the Lord in the seasons of dryness and discomfort and confusion and pain? How do I honor the Lord? So when you spend your life enduring what is hard, when you spend your life doing the will of God in times of plenty and in times of want, what's the result? After you've done this long enough, you'll receive the promises. You'll taste the promises today. You'll enter the eternal promises when all of this is over. Be faithful with present faith. Remember the past. Remember the warnings. Be faithful because there's a future hope coming. A few practical things as we wrap this up. What is your view of sin? Uh, What has been your view of sin in general and in your own sin as a Christian? What has been your view of sin generally, but also your own sin as a Christian? Maybe it's this little thing. It's not a big deal. Maybe it's grace, grace, grace. It's amazing, but it's a certain kind of grace, right? Uh, it's the kind of grace that's, that's given and it's bloody. What's your view of sin been? Not a big deal, especially not the ones I do. Now, the sins you do are a big deal, especially if they bother me. The sins you do are a big deal when they make my life uncomfortable. Mine, not so much. Or do I start to feel the gravity of sin to point me towards gratitude in Jesus for his sacrifice? I'm trampling over Jesus again. And yet you died for somebody that would trample over you again. Thank you, Jesus, for such an amazing grace. Second, what are some hard things God has brought you through in the past, and how did you endure these? What are some hard things God has brought you through in the past? And maybe, you know, you're younger, and they've been smaller, and not always. Sometimes, you know, the endurance muscle is strengthened by smaller things, smaller things that get bigger over a lifetime, and your muscles are strengthened for that. Maybe not. But what are some of the things God's brought you through? Because he has brought you through stuff before. Where you are today, by his help, you've come. And so, start writing on stones again. I'm here because God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. What are some things God's brought you through? How did he bring them through? And I bet there's some people in your groups and in your circles that could use the encouragement of how he's brought you through to this point because they have stuff to go through to get to where they are. Last, what would honoring the Lord look like in your life right now? Maybe your green pastures, still waters, restored soul, and it's awesome. How could you tangibly and practically honor the Lord today with that kind of situation? Maybe you're in table in the presence of my enemies, valley of the shadow of death kind of stuff. And, and, and it's tough. The only question you have to worry about, not how do I change my husband? How do I change my wife? How do I change my roommate? How do I change my teammate? Like, that's not what you have to worry about. You know what you got to worry about? God, what would honor you in my response right now? And if you're pleased, it's going to be enough. Your possessions are better. Your reward is better. Your hope is better. So, what would honoring the Lord look like tangibly in your life today, whatever your life looks like today? Jesus is better. He is way too precious for you to walk away from. His promises are too amazing. And he's given you this body of people, very imperfect body of people called the church, to walk through this life with. Why? So that we're warned and we're encouraged to keep going, to hold fast, 
to press on to more of Jesus. So let's be that kind of body together. So Father, in Jesus' name we bow. We thank you that you're a God who is sufficient for life's painful crushings and you're sufficient for life's greatest joys. We're thankful that you've given us a body that says it should rejoice with each other rejoicing. And you've given us a body that should weep with those who are weeping. And Lord, we can carry the sorrows of each other together. And Lord, I pray that we'd be spurred on to hold fast today. I pray the muscles in our hands and our arms spiritually would be strengthened by these truths today so that we could keep climbing, so that we could hold tight to the little hand and foothold that we have. Father, I pray that you'd give such grace into our lives and relationships that we help each other hold fast. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. If judgment begins at the house of the Lord and the righteous are scarcely saved, what will be the truth of those who have rejected the gospel, is what 1 Peter says. I just want to encourage you, if you would be free from your sin, if you would be free of the judgment of God that is coming to every single one of us, if God is opening your eyes to the weight of sin and the beauty of Jesus, I just plead with you, hear that conviction turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, not your religious hope in Jesus, the weight of your eternity in Jesus. You can do that. We can pray together. You can fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and let us know you want to talk through it, and we'd love to. But maybe today you sit here and you're like, you're challenged. Man, my view of sin has been too small. Are there some sins I've wanted to keep? I just, I just don't want those gone, and they're not that big anyways. And maybe God's just using this passage to warn you to open it up again because the more you open it up, the more grace you'll find. The more you close it up, the more challenges and hardship and obstacles you'll find. Come and confess before the Lord and just open it up to him here or, or where you are. Or maybe it's your turn to be in the hardship. It's your turn to face the challenging infusion season of life. And it's your turn to say, God, I need fresh memory of your salvation and fresh memory of where you've brought me before. Do that too. Let's stand together and sing, and you respond how the Lord is leading you.